Welcome to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne. It is heartwarming, isn't it, when you hear stories of dying wishes fulfilled. You might have teared up a little bit if you saw this one on TV recently. New South Wales police who made four-year-old Zoe from Sydney an honorary constable for the day. She so desperately wanted to be a policewoman when she grows up, but she's suffering tragically from brain cancer. So a team of police arrived at a house with a junior police uniform and whipped her and her mum off in the police car and later even a helicopter to fulfil her dying wish. Maybe in your own case you've got a bucket list, a list of things you want to do and see before you kick the bucket. Parachute jump maybe, although I'd suggest you keep that right till the very end of the list just in case. Oh, but the, the trip to Uluru, eating at that fine restaurant, all those things you've kind of always wanted that will let you die perhaps satisfied. I wonder, turning things a little more serious, what you would be praying for if you knew your days were numbered. At a time like this, with the passing of the Queen, of course, there's been virtually 24-hour media coverage where they love to fill the airtime with experts who all apparently have known the Queen so very well and speak so earnestly of what she said behind closed doors. And one thing I noticed specifically through the week was the amount of comment around William and Harry walking together in the street. See, we don't really know how bad things between them are, do we? Maybe it's 90% media beat-up and 10% truth. But one thing that experts are saying and even Oprah Winfrey from afar, is that this would have been the Queen's greatest dying wish, to see the family united. Plus, I guess, finding a happy place for the corgis. But seriously, a family rift, if it's as bad as the media paints it, it's a terrible sadness, isn't it? And not only that, it brings the reputation of the whole royal family down. Now this morning, as we draw near the end of the story we have been following here at Scott's through John's Gospel, we're looking at one of the final prayers of Jesus as he knows his hour has come. He's about to be arrested and tried and crucified. He knows that he is about to die in the most horrific of circumstances and so he prays. This is a prayer that he prays with a heavy heart. It's a prayer you'll notice first of all for God's glory in verses 1 to 5. It's a prayer then for his disciples the ones the Father gave him, verses 6 to 19, who he's taught and trained. 
and now is leaving behind. And finally, verses 20 to 26, it is a prayer, literally, for us. I'm not kidding, this is a prayer for you and me, as Jesus looks ahead and prays explicitly for those of us who one day are going to believe on him because of the words of his disciples. Believers exactly like us. And so I will urge you specifically, especially when we get to that section, to pay special attention because most especially it is a prayer for unity between his followers. That people like you and me, people like you and the people sitting beside you and behind you and around you, will actually love one another in a way that truly makes us one. First though, as we rewind to the beginning, you'll notice, as I mentioned, that in verse 1, Jesus is keenly aware that his hour has come, which is a phrase that has recurred through John's Gospel like a clock ticking down that's attached to a bomb. And so Jesus prays because the hour has come. It's a prayer, as I said, first of all, for God's glory, which in absolutely basic terms means that God will be magnified rather than diminished through what's about to happen. Now that is a big ask when you think about it if you have any sense of what's going to unfold, that God's reputation will somehow be enhanced as this troublemaking rabbi is arrested and beaten and publicly humiliated in the worst possible way. And yet we'll see that every move from here on is intentional. There's nothing unexpected. This is Jesus doing the work that God has given him to do. So this is his prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Which ultimately is a prayer that goes a step beyond the cross to what follows. Because fundamentally, Jesus says, God has given him authority over matters of life and death. That somehow in the next 96 hours, the secrets of life and death and eternal life are going to be laid bare in a way never before seen. Which will ultimately be the way all the betrayal and the humiliation, and the spit, and the whipping, and the nails, and the spear, how all those things are going to be flipped aside to reveal God's glory. Now that at this point is the top of the wish list for Jesus. That is his first prayer. Ultimately, it's a prayer that finally, after travelling undercover for so long, after demonstrating and explaining and demonstrating and explaining again to his disciples that he has come from above, 
It's time for that to be plainly seen. That's his prayer. Now, please don't think poorly of me, but does anybody watch The Masked Singer? It's one of those shows I think is in the category that it's so bad that it's almost good. Uh, To be honest, I've never watched an episode all the way through, but the one thing I can't look away from is the big reveal. You know, they've got these singers in their crazy masks like a huge box of popcorn on their head. You've got to guess who they are until the moment where the votes come in and they have to unmask themselves. And you know, Screechy Husey, he's full of the most outrageous guesses. It's going to be Mariah Carey or it's going to be Adele. It ends up being Mark Philippousis. Imagine, though, an unmasking like that that leaves you astounded rather than let down. In 2019, masked singer South Korea actually nailed it when they had Ryan Reynolds as the unicorn. Who would have thought? But what about even bigger than that? What Jesus prays is that God will finally bring about the great reveal, the great unmasking of him. So he will finally be seen as he is in all the glory that he left behind in the beginning. Remember chapter 1, it seems a long time ago now. But we saw in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. Incognito. Now, finally, to be revealed. Now again, that's the essence of his glory prayer. And now, Father, verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Let me be seen as I really am through my death and resurrection. Now you'll notice he prays the same near the end of the prayer, like bookends in a sense. Father, he says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That finally it's all going to be clear that we will see him as he really is final day that followers of Jesus long for. Now, in the second phase of his prayer, Jesus prays earnestly and very specifically for the 11 he's leaving behind. And look, in spite of all the confident glory language, as I was looking at these words the other day, it dawned on me how how sad Jesus sounds as he really is looking down the barrel of his own death and he's going to the Father. Not only a traumatic prospect for himself, but that he's leaving behind his closest friends to fend for themselves in such a hostile environment. And so he's praying desperately 
that his father will watch over them. First, that they will be preserved in proclaiming the word. That they will be kept in his name and not drawn away by the evil one like Judas was. It's a prayer that those who have kept his word and believed will be kept by God and keep believing. Here's how it goes, verses 6 to 8. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them, I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. As we saw last week, these 11 who have been with him from the start are at the point where now they know everything that they need to know. Now they're persuaded, as we saw last week in chapter 16, persuaded that Jesus really has come from the Father. They have received the word, they've believed the word and so he says they know the truth. Which is why, says Jesus, I'm praying especially for them and not at this point for everyone else. This is the little flock that he's been shepherding. These are the sheep that he's kept and guarded. Not one of them lost, except, he says, the son of destruction, Judas, according to plan. And his prayer is that his father would guard them now and keep them as he goes. More than that, that he'll keep them united, verse 11. That they may be one, he says, even as we are one. That's the prayer. Give them unity, give them joy, even as the world hates them, verse 13. And finally, a prayer that the Father will keep them safe from the evil one, in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then at last in verses 17 to 19, a prayer in a sense of commissioning. I've mentioned this a few times in the last few weeks for our regulars, that we've got two distinct words that we traditionally use to describe these guys. They're quite famous, aren't they? You might think the two words mean the same thing, but they actually don't, and this is the point where it changes. They started out as the 12 disciples. You've heard of them. Which means learners. Now here's the point where that changes. And they become the 11 apostles. Which means literally sent ones. Delegates. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, and there the root word behind that is apostello, 
so I have sent them into the world. And now for their sake I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Sent into the world and now literally as apostles, as sent ones, as ambassadors of Jesus. Truth tellers as they go out with the true word of the gospel into an often hostile world that they were drawn out from. In the world but no longer of the world. Set apart, sanctified, like Jesus is. Now, that is his prayer for his closest friends, that God will keep them faithful and strong and true, no matter what hard times lie ahead. That they will be united, that they'll be joyful in hardship, that they would be faithful in the truth. Which, as we'll see next week, still leaves them lots of scope for improvement from this point. But, this is a powerful prayer. Now, as I said, the chapter falls into three parts. The prayer falls into three main sections. And we're coming now to section three, which is a prayer finally for you and me. Now, I don't know about you, but I reckon it's pretty cool that Jesus actually envisaged that this little crew of 11 apostles would actually spread the word to a point where there would be a long line of people forward through the centuries who would believe through their words, who would actually be listening to these very words on a Sunday morning 2,000 years later in a place called Melbourne. It is astonishing. I wonder if you have any of that same confidence about the next generation hearing the message. It's especially encouraging that Jesus actually prays for us. So follow his words from verse 20. He's not praying just for the 11. See what he says. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then look at the substance of his prayer. See, here I think he really is praying for a miracle. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now, friends, you can't escape the fact that Jesus, perhaps like the Queen in her final hopes and dreams for her family, that Jesus desperately desires that most elusive of all things, and that is that his people, you and me, would be known for our astonishing unity, the way we love each other. 
that we may be one just as Jesus and his Father are one so that the world may believe the Father sent me. I wonder, has it occurred to you that getting on with one another isn't something that comes naturally to us humans? When you see family units fall apart, you might have experienced that. While it's always tragic, it's never surprising, is it? Even with royals. I mean, why would you expect two high-profile brothers to get on when one of them is destined for greatness and the other one's just despair? Why, why would you expect Megan's hunger for attention and approval to be satisfied by the second runner? when the position comes at such high price. Humans, by their very nature, are in turns ambitious and shy and defensive and selfish and aggressive. In relationships, we'll tend to be either like a, a rhino full speed ahead and potentially crushing or a porcupine, prickly and unapproachable. When people are involved, any kind of unity takes a miracle. And yet that is what Jesus prays for us. And friends, that is what we're called to. And in spite of the disappointments, and in spite of the fact that it doesn't come naturally, it is what we most need. One of the great ironies of the rise of social media. We're connected to other people like never before. But at the same time, there is an epidemic of loneliness like never before. We have never been so detached, so apart, so depressed as we constantly compare ourselves and yet from a distance, so desperate for real human connection. We're living in a world where the idea of, of a common truth has been almost dissolved by the idea that everyone's own truth is true for them. So we all retreat to our own little self-defined identity and group ourselves into smaller and smaller subsets until in the end even they fail to hold us together. And it is so desperately, desperately sad, especially when you see fractures in a church. And so Jesus prays for our unity, as if he knows in advance, as those gathered by his gospel that we would be united in his truth. A unity that was astonishingly expressed in the first century church as a group that brought together Jews and Gentiles over a vast racial divide as one. Brought together slaves and free as if they were brothers and sisters as one. Astonishing. That brought together this thing called the church where people freely shared their possessions when they saw need, that they shared a common table. No one was hungry. Everyone was wealthy. 
that they honestly shared their lives and their joys and their burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoiced, grieving with those who grieved. All in one faith, one spirit, which remains our call today. Which is why maybe you see you shouldn't just head for that back door as quickly as you can after the service. And you shouldn't be satisfied that you don't even know the name of that person who's been sitting in front of you for the last 20 years. Friends, how can we truly love one another in unity if we don't even start by knowing one another? Yet, of course, it's so much easier not to, isn't it? And we shouldn't be satisfied to let our old feuds over minor things define our future relationships. Instead, we should join in the prayer of Jesus that we would be one in a way that brings glory to God. Friends, that is the prayer of Jesus. That is his last wish, his great desire as he faces the cross. I have made known to them your name, he says in verse 26, and I will continue to make it known that the love by which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. His work is almost done. He's revealed the Father. Now by his spirit and his word, it's a prayer for unity and love, for a gospel message that will resonate through the world and through the ages, down the generations. It's a prayer for people like us who will live it out. It's a prayer that in many ways the Father has wonderfully answered through the years. And yet, in other ways, is still working its way out as we work out in each generation how to love one another better. So, friends, I want to call on you this morning to commit to being part of that great prayer, being part of the answer to the prayer as the Father continues to work among us as a church. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.